Hey there, Church of the Valley. Thanks for joining us as we begin the final chapter of 1 Peter as we have been going through this series known as Proving Grounds, going verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter. We've been walking through this letter written by Peter to the early church believers who were exiled and dispersed all from out of Rome and around Rome. <laughs> the reality is I am entering midlife. I'm going to be 40 in just a few months. And I don't know if I've fully embraced that reality. When I was younger, I was always the youngest guy in the room. People always looked at me as the, kind of the, the young guy who, how did he get in this room? Why is he getting to be a part of this? Why does he have the position that he has? And because of my personality and my willingness to ask questions, I often saw myself in these rooms with people significantly smarter than me and more accomplished than I was. And if I'm honest, it went to my head a lot. I, for so many years of my Christian life, spent justifying myself by my accomplishments and the things that I had done, the things that I had accomplished, other than by who Jesus made me to be. I share any and all of that with you, not to sound in any way like I'm trying to brag, but really to just confess that I don't know when I stopped being the young guy and became this middle-aged guy. It's funny when I speak with young adults and not so young adults within our community and listen to what they're going through and they ask me advice rather than me sharing unsolicited advice with them just because I used to when I was younger. It's funny to me because I'm surprised that people want to hear my advice. They want to hear my opinion because sometimes I forget that I have done more in this life than I have. And I actually have experience, but primarily from the mistakes that I've done to draw from. So again, why do I share this with you? Why do I begin this sermon of 1 Peter chapter 5 with you talking about this? Because in the church of the living God, which God has made us a family full of people of different ages and experiences and maturity. Now, as the lead pastor of Church of the Valley, I don't want you for one second to think that I'm the most experienced or the most holy or the most mature or the most biblical or even the wisest in our community. Because if you've spent any time with me at all, you know that's not the case. But what makes me the lead pastor? What makes me an elder at, the, at Church of the Valley? Honestly, it's the calling from God and the affirmation of his people at COV that has made me the lead pastor of Church of the Valley, which has given me a responsibility to care for and to feed and to teach and to protect those spiritually within our community. And, the, and it's also because of the decision that God made to give me the responsibility that I have currently in this role at this church to grow me and the responsibility that I have to help others grow within this community. Similar to my children, they, the people of Church of the Valley, and my children are not mine. But I have the responsibility to steward your spiritual well-being the best that I can. But thankfully, I don't have to do that alone. I get to have the extreme pleasure of sharing the load of responsibility with six other godly, Holy Spirit-indwelled followers of Jesus that are the eldership at Church of the Valley. In order to properly oversee the church of people at COV, I believe that having a group of elders is not only biblical, but is very, very, very effective when it comes to caring for, loving, and leading the church for the glory of God's name. 
In September of 2018, we installed our eldership, which from everything I've learned and read is and was the first time that this church, Church of the Valley, which has been around for roughly 68 years, had an elder board. Today, we're going to cover Peter's words of what he encourages the elders in the early church with, while also exhorting others in the congregation to be in the elders' care. So here we go, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, here's what Peter begins with. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Peter, an elder, who's also an apostle, a spokesperson for the apostles, speaks from firsthand experience as an elder of the Christians who were and are exiled at this time, and specifically to the elders among them. See, Peter was the spokesperson for the apostles, the men who Jesus chose to preach and teach and to begin God's church, explained to us through the book of Acts. He connects with his audience through the fact that he too was an elder in the church of the living God. Then he says in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock, elders, that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Peter exhorts these elders to be shepherds. Why? Because we are sheep. I'm a sheep. You're a sheep. We are sheep under the great shepherd, and elders are a representation of Jesus as the good shepherd. Elders are entrusted the function of shepherding and caring for the flock of sheep within the church. So an elder doesn't just manage a pastor or a staff or even people, but as a shepherd, we are to care, to look out for, to protect, to groom, and to feed those who are in our care. When this very Peter had denied Christ three times and Jesus then goes and dies on the cross, he rises from the dead. He shows himself to many people around Jerusalem. He then comes to Peter to reinstate him. But what does he tell him to do? Turn with me, if you are able, to John chapter 21, and here's what Peter and Jesus' conversation looks like. In John chapter 21, verse 15, it says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter says. You know that I love you. And then Jesus responds, feed my lambs. Some argue about what more than these actually meant. I contend that it may have meant the fish that they were eating, considering Peter had been a fisherman, and fish could represent Peter's former life where he was known as Simon, the fisherman, before Jesus named him Peter, and Peter became someone identified by Jesus Christ as one of his followers and eventually one of his apostles. So once Peter responds to Jesus' question about Peter loving him, and Peter confirms, Jesus says, feed my lambs, wash them with the word, teach those young in the faith about the truth of my word. Then in verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Peter again responds that he loves Jesus, and Jesus once again points to him Peter's shepherding role. Take care of my sheep. Provide for my sheep. Keep them safe and cared for. Serve them so as to provide for their well-being spiritually. 
Then verse 17, the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt by this because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Once again, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him three times, paralleling the three times that Peter had denied Christ as Jesus was being arrested and then taken to the cross. And once again, Jesus tells Peter, an elder, to feed his sheep, to teach them, the sheep, all that Jesus has commanded them to do, Matthew 28, verse 20. On our takeaway call, one person this past week when we were doing our takeaway call that happens at 11.30 each week on Zoom, one of the people on the call shared that they were attempting to figure out what God was commanding them to do in particular. And even though God may ask us to do different things within different circumstances than someone else, I think we begin with what he tells all of his followers to do. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, we see Jesus speaking with some religious folks, some some Sadducees, some people that were trying to stump him. And here's what it says in verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, then the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's really easy to hear or read the great commandment, love God with all that you are and love your neighbor too. Love God and love people and skip over it and want something that's more complicated or something that's less comprehensive of everything that we do. But here it is. How do you love God right now, Christian? If you are an elder, a shepherd, a sheep, a lamb, or maybe even a prodigal son or daughter who has walked away, but you still know you have a connection to God, because it may not look the same for each of us today in real time, but loving God and loving others is always the title at the top of the page of our obedience, always. And if you are an elder, a shepherd, a sheep, a lamb, or a prodigal, you too also need to filter what you are called to do through loving others by making your neighbor's needs as important as your own. Christian, how do you love God and love people right where you're at today, no matter what? This is a question I don't get right more than half the time. But when I do, you know who always gets the credit? God, in three persons. The Father for commanding it, the Son for making it possible, and the Spirit for working through me. And this is what an elder, a shepherd, models to the rest of the flock, taking care of them by loving God and by loving others, watching over them, protecting them and caring for them. But notice that Peter even points out the motivation behind this care that an elder has. Look at the middle of verse 2. It says, not because you must take care of the flock as shepherds, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. An elder's heart is one that God points to when it comes to the responsibility of being a shepherd, of being an elder. 
Why do we care for those that are in the congregation of Church of the Valley? Why do we put in extra time of prayer and preparation and counseling and listening and advising and directing and board meeting (laughs) and everything else that goes with the responsibility of caring for a church community? Because we are willing. Because we love God and we love people. And it is so easy to forget that when you're in the middle of a busy season or turmoil within the church, because guess what? That happens even here. It's easy to become stagnant or frustrated or bitter or arrogant when it comes to the responsibility that is entrusted to elders within the church community. But as we say a lot, but God. It's always but God. But God has given elders in his church, true elders, who don't seek glory for themselves or want to lord over the authority that has been given to them in the care for the people. But what do we do? See, it is in these most honest and vulnerable moments that we realize that we love God and love his people when we are willing to care for people that are difficult, when we're willing to care for people that are confessing difficult things to us. I've shepherded in some type of capacity for close to two decades now. Now I get to pull the back in my day, like truly. And the lesson that has been learned over and over and over, and let me just emphasize this, and over again, is that, lo- that being a shepherd isn't about how smart or wise or how good you are at advising someone in a difficult circumstance. The most important attribute a shepherd possesses for their congregation is dependence upon Jesus. Let me say that again. The most important thing that an elder provides for the congregation that they can possess as an elder to give to the congregation is that they personally are dependent upon Jesus. Dependence, not confidence in our own strength or trust in our own ability, but a biblical lens that points out the truth of what God says to the people that are within our care. We have for three years that I've been at Church of the Valley, a little over that now, have spoken a lot about the term thinking biblically. This doesn't mean we have a verse for everything. It means we live this life, we advise others, we handle trials and speak all through the lens and filter of God's word. We have this for a reason. God became, uh, God came in the flesh and the word lives among us. We don't lean on our own understanding, but we adore and we rely on on what God says in a book that, yes, is 2,000 years old. And we trust that what God has to say is timeless and is as relevant today as if it was when God spoke through the prophets and the apostles thousands of years ago. But if you want to know how we can best serve you as a congregation, as elders, it's by opening this on our own. It's by reading this on our own, not just having a quiet time that sounds like a time out in the corner, but to open the Bible and read the words of it and learn it and talk about it with other people that we trust and have a biblical perspective, thinking through the filter, which is God's word, which we can point you to him and what he says about any certain circumstance. 
God wants us to be willing to serve. And then Peter says, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. See, a leadership role, especially in the eldership or pastorate when in the church, can be used for the advantage of the elder or the pastor. Unfortunately, if you've been in the church at all, any church at all, or read articles about the church leadership in some capacity, you've probably experienced or heard of some scandalous event within the leadership of the church. First off, I have to admit that no leader is impervious to this. I don't want you to ever attempt to exalt any leaders within the church of the valley. See, we're not the point. Jesus is the point. I hope we can model grace and truth but also repentance and confession when we fail. Notice I said when we fail, not if we fail. See, leaders fail. Why? Because we're sheep. We make mistakes. We don't always act holy or reverent or Jesus-centered, but the great news of the gospel means that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, that he is faithful to forgive and he gives us faith to repent and change direction and stop doing what we once did. That is the beauty of the gospel. We aren't saved by what we do, but because of what Jesus has done, we can turn from our mistakes and run to him. That's the beautiful thing about this gospel. Again, we are not saved by what we do, but because of what Jesus has done, we can turn from our mistakes and turn to him. Now, depending on the mistake, there are things we can do to disqualify ourselves from our responsibility, and I'm not going to give you a list, okay? But trust me, there are some, and some that you're thinking of absolutely would disqualify. So even though we can be forgiven by the Lord, we still may lose our responsibility of shepherding, which if we are eager and willing to serve should just be another reason why we do not allow our flesh our human nature, if you will, to dominate us when the Spirit of God resides in us and enables us to turn from our sin and turn to God's grace. Verse 3, Peter continues, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Don't use your responsibility to act as if you're better or more important than those within the congregation, is what Peter's pointing out regarding the elders. But elder, be an example, practice what you preach, and give people a template for what trusting and being dependent upon Christ ought to look like. As I say those words, I think of our elders. I think of Mark Frederick and Mike Miller and Stephen Cheney and Kyle Zilka and Daniel Delwood and John Colburn. And I don't really think of myself even though I'm included in those. But when I think of those men, I think of men that are reliant upon God to lead their families. To, to be uh, people who do a great job at their work environment, to be men who shepherd and shoulder the responsibility to care for the people of Church of the Valley. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. There is this beautiful reality that those who have been called to shepherd and care for the flock have a huge responsibility that if done with pure motives and, and done eagerly, that it will 
reward us, I guess, if the, that there is an award that elders in the church of the living God receive, which according to Revelation is a crown. And that, here's the thing about that, is not the true prize, but just a crown that we as elders will lay at the feet of our true prize, who is Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, here's what John writes. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. An elder's goal is not to earn glory, but to serve God's people so Jesus gets glory. This may be one of the things that our motivation and heart will be exposed by the most. Does all the service and work and effort and time that we put into action throughout our lives become what we think actually justify us? Or is it still Jesus? Is it still the Christ? Is it still that he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves? Or do we think we've done enough to pay him back for the grace that he's given us? We will stand before God one day. We're going to stand before the holy and perfect God. And my question is, will we stand before God with a smirk on our face, expecting him to praise our name? Or if the gospel is really true and we really believe it and claim that it is the point, will we stand before God the Father in all his holiness and bow down and point all our praise and all our glory and all our thankfulness to Jesus Christ for what he has done on our behalf? If you think you are due any praise at the end of this Christian life, you don't understand the gospel. Now, I want you to sit with that for a moment. If you think that you're working towards your epitaph, if you think you're working towards something really nice on your tombstone where people could say things about you, and you're not working towards your life to look more like Jesus, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel that Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. The gospel that the kingdom of God has come to earth, not just to the United States church, but to earth to give you access to God because you couldn't work your way to God on your own. The gospel that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life doing nothing wrong while doing everything right. And then he died a sinner's death. Imagine that. And victoriously rose from the dead. And by believing and identifying with this message of grace and this person who is perfect, you and I go from death to life. The gospel isn't about you. It's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about his life. It's about his sacrifice. It's about his resurrection. It's about his victory over sin and death. You know who isn't in the gospel message doing anything of worth? You. Me, us, it's all Jesus. And I wish that we as a community wouldn't just say that we believe this, but that we live this way.
We lived grateful lives because our faithful God decided to enter into the fray and pull us out of the muck and mire which was our sin and place us in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, all because God's plan is better, more beautiful, more eternal, and more Christ-centered than ours. Rant over for now. Now, we will see Peter contrast the elders with, I guess, the youngers, if you will. But as we've said before, spiritual maturity is not based on your manufactured date, but it's based on your mileage. So as we look at the admonishment that Peter gives, don't assume because you're older that he isn't talking to you and he's not talking to me. In the same way, verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In the same way, likewise, what is Peter communicating? That those who are less mature also should be in submission. An elder pastor is in submission to Christ and as a sheep is in submission to his or her shepherd. And the elders and pastors, if it's a biblical church, are under shepherds under Christ. We submit to Christ and his word, and sheep in the congregation are cared for and are submitted to the leadership of the elders of the church that God has instituted. Now, I'll tell you what, submission is a four-letter word in society today, don't you think? In chapter 3, Mike and Karen Miller led us through the passage about marriage and submission just a few, about a month ago. And some of you didn't want to hear that sermon because you don't like that passage. And you missed out. You know why? Because God reveals himself and his purpose even in the passages that we don't want to read. Or as Daniel put it, we just skim over because we don't think it applies to us and we miss out. Submission is a prerequisite of spiritual maturity. Oh, dang. Some of you didn't like that I just said that, huh? Raise your hands. Okay, cool. I don't see you. Well, guess what? You can't be like Jesus and not submit. Think about that. We want to grow to look more like who? Jesus. And he was submitted fully and completely to the Father's will. And then I hear these excuses. I'll be submitted to God, but not to man. Um, listen. You aren't fully submitted to God. You don't naturally open this book and do what it says. None of us do, but God. But God gives us his spirit. God gives us his word. God gives us the church to walk alongside us, to be submitted to leaders who have been entrusted your soul. We care about you but you can voluntarily be a part of this community or you can voluntarily leave whenever you want. But if you are around, if you are attending, if you are watching the playlist, if you are engaging, we believe we have a responsibility for your soul spiritually and the Lord will hold the leaders accountable for how we steward your lives for the glory of his name. But with the pandemic, and the inability currently to meet together in person the way we once did. We don't know how much and who is engaging. 
See, we have a Zoom takeaway call, which makes a difference. We get emails, some of us do, I do sometimes, of what God is doing in people's lives. Maybe I hear it from the elders or I hear about it from the staff where you guys have been communicated with and then you tell me about it. But community groups are, are an amazing way to stay connected. But I have an ask for you. I have an application for you. If you're listening to my words and you consider yourself part of Church of the Valley. Now, if you just accidentally stumbled across this video and you're, you're watching this, man, I hope you get the gospel and you, you trust him and you give your life to him if you haven't already, that God does a crazy work in you. But if you consider yourself a part of Church of the Valley, and that's who I'm talking to, if you are a part of this community in your own mind because you watch the playlist each week and you participate in some type of connection with other people within the community, either a phone call or FaceTime or Zoom call or Discord or community group or takeaway call or anything like those, would you reach out to someone you know within the community this week? Someone you haven't talked to in a while? Would you send them an email or a text? Give them a call over the phone? See, a few months back, I asked you to email me, and many of you did. Now, in asking you to reach out to, back then, I asked you to reach out to me. Now, I'm going to ask you to reach out to others. I'm going to ask you to check in with someone that maybe you haven't seen in a while or talked to. And I know that people come to mind as you think about this. But do this. From a distance, reach out to somebody and say, hey, I've been thinking about you. How are you doing? We want to be a place where people belong. And reaching out to one another goes a really long way. Don't expect someone to just reach out to you. You reach out to somebody else and see what God does with that. So Peter says, those who are younger, those who are less mature, submit yourself to your elders. I don't think we take this to mean every person who is young should listen to everything someone who is older tells them to do. That's not what this is about. But based on the context, those who are sheep those who are cared for and accountable to the eldership of the church should submit themselves to the decisions that are made by the elders and the care that they intend to give to you as part of the community. See, this is not about exalting an individual because they are an elder. This is about submission to an under-shepherd, under Christ, as a representation of your submission to Jesus. That's what this is about. For the first century, exiled believers, they were scattered. As Peter says in chapter 1, accountability and connection was more difficult than ever before, but Peter is telling the sheep to not run from the shepherds. Peter exhorts, clothe yourselves with humility. We talk a lot about humility at COV, and it's something that you can't really try to be. Well, listen, I'm going to be hella humble today. Watch, you're going to see me, and I'm going to be way more humble than you. Yeah, it, it doesn't work that way. Clothe yourselves with humility has more to do with your focus and your target being Jesus. See, if Jesus is the point, you can't be. And that helps humility be achieved rather than you just trying really hard to just not talk about yourself all the time. So why does Peter admonish these believers in humility? Well, Peter quotes something that James also quotes in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. So why do Peter and James both quote this proverb in their letters? Because humility is a work of God and pride is a work of the flesh. So think about that the next time you're bragging about your golf score or your Instagram post. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, 
under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Once again, Peter uses language that makes it all about God. He lifts us up. We are humbled under him. If you spend all your time comparing yourself to others, you'll always find someone that you're better than. But if you compare yourself to Jesus, you then have the opportunity to repent and receive his grace because he is perfect and we are not. And because if you do, look at what Peter says. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This verse often gets taught in a vacuum without any care for context or what Peter is trying to communicate. It is a great verse, but it doesn't just mean anytime you're feeling anxiety, pawn it off on Jesus. That's not what this means. It comes out of the admonishment to be humbled, to not make things about you. And then when you are overwhelmed, hand that to Jesus because he cares for you. Last week, I made us stop in the message and think about the reality that God loves you, that he loves you at your worst, that he loves you at your best, that he loves you every day in public and in secret. God's love and care for his people is something we overlook a lot. He freaking loves us, church. Can I say that? I just did. And he cares for our souls so much that he'd die a sinner's death even though he was sinless. And on top of that, he cares so much for us that our daily lives should not be lived apart from his care and our relationship with him. And because of that relationship, you and me, we get to cast the most difficult of circumstances, the surprise phone calls, the unexpected bills, the broken relationships, the loss of jobs, the decaying of our bodies of getting older, the fear of the unknown future. We get to cast all of that upon him and he cares and he walks with us. And listen, he doesn't always fix it, nor does he always make it easier. But the point is that we're not alone. We are in relationship with the God of all gods, the only God that can get us through anything with not only his help, but with his love and with God's presence. Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be alert. Be prepared, be planning, be watchful. Be of sober mind, be self-controlled in some translations, which is a work of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit of God in us where he's working. Your enemy, the devil, guess who your enemy isn't? That boss you have that you really don't like that politician that makes your skin crawl, that sports team that just beat your team. You may think they are used by the devil, but they are not your enemy. You know who your enemy is? Who was it? Who could it possibly be? Was it? Oh, I don't know. Satan. Yeah, Satan. And he is looking for ways to trip up God's people. See, Satan can't take the salvation of someone who has come to Christ that God has drawn to himself, but he can squelch our sanctification 
and we can rely more and more on the flesh rather than on God's Spirit. Verse 9, resist him, Peter says, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Resist him, Peter says. <laughs> That's easier said than done, huh? But Peter tells these exiled Christians that resisting him is vital. Stand firm in your faith. All right, there's no one in this room. I need to tell you a quick secret. You ready? Standing firm in the faith is hard. <laughs> I don't care if you're an elder or a pastor, elderly saint, or a brand new believer. Standing firm in the faith through temptations and trials may be the hardest thing that a Christian has to deal with. And God knows that just, that just another reason why he has gifted us his spirit that his spirit indwells us is so important because standing firm in the faith isn't just improbable, it's impossible without the spirit of God inside of us. Our standing firm in the faith isn't about our willpower, but God's power available to us in his spirit as we keep our eyes fixated on Jesus. Resisting the devil and standing firm in the faith isn't about speaking Jesus's name over the devil, the power of Christ compels you. That's not what this is. Or saying something out loud. Guess what? It's about obedience to what God says. Huh? That's what it is. And resisting the devil is all about trusting God at his word. And once again, it's about obedience. See, love-inspired obedience is the key to everything we tend to not understand about Christianity. So maybe start to read the Bible with love-inspired obedience as the filter. Maybe that's why Jesus did what he did. Maybe that's why we ought to obey him when we don't want to. Maybe that's why we ought to submit. Why? Because love-inspired obedience is something that the Spirit does in his people. See, love-inspired obedience is the key to why Jesus did for you and I what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's why we love God and we love others. And Peter says, resist and stand firm because you know the family of God throughout the world is also enduring the same suffering. What an encouragement to the first century believer to be reminded that they are not alone, that the family of God, the believers exiled all around too, are undergoing the same trials and needing to be dependent and rely on the grace of God. Okay, real talk. <laughs> I guess I'll start now. Um, 2020 is kind of a dumpster fire, isn't it? Can we all agree upon this? Like, I don't know many people going, dang, 2020 just keeps getting better. In fact, it seems to be getting worse and worse. But believers, gospel-believing, Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-led, God-fearing, word-abiding, Jesus-centered Christians, we too are suffering in all types of trials. And we have the same God who can and will see us through. A pretty unprecedented time in history, God will see us through it. And as we endure, as we persevere, as we praise God in the, the mo most dire of circumstances, God gets the praise. Guess what? We'll be stronger because of it and even more like Christ-like for it because our suffering for Jesus' name identifies us with him.
So Peter concludes, or at least I'm concluding with what Peter says right here in verses 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory. When the gospel message clicked for you, you were, you were not just saved from your flesh, but you were invited to God's eternal glory. And the trials that we endure today, they perfect us and strengthen us towards Christ for tomorrow. Christians are to live with the understanding that God's purposes realized in the future require some pain in the present. But let me just show you what God produces in us through that pain according to the verses that we just studied. See, suffering produces in us submission, verse 5. Suffering produces in us humility, verses 5 and 6. Suffering produces in us trust, verse 7. It produces sober-mindedness in verse 8. Suffering produces in us preparedness in verses 8 and 9. Suffering produces in us hope, verse 10. And according to verse 11, it produces in us worship. So Christians, we cannot say that the trials and the suffering and the pain we endure are in vain. They're not. They are part of God's sovereign and beautiful plan to refine us, to be more like his son. And we should always be pursuing that reality and request in prayer and how we view our circumstances. No matter if you're an elder, a shepherd, a sheep, a lamb, or a prodigal, the goal is the same. We want to look more like Jesus, but not through our effort, but through God refining us by circumstance and defining us in Jesus. Okay, I'm pretty much done, but I just want to say that I miss you guys a lot. I miss being together in community. I'm, I'm in the worship center. I'm standing where I generally stand to preach when we meet in, in person, except, man, this is like, like five minutes before first service. Like, it is empty in here. But I'm even wearing a nice shirt, and I'm wearing jeans, first time in months. And I know what we're dealing with is not ideal, but I keep hearing stories of God using this time for those who haven't just given up on community where they expose what they're really, what's really most important to them. See, I've heard stories of people within this congregation being served by others in this congregation, sometimes from afar, sometimes in person. I hear about how people who never wanted to step within the church building have begun to hear the gospel through the playlist each week, and it's creating conversations about Jesus that wouldn't have happened otherwise. I'm hearing about how community groups are helping people engage with others in a very difficult time, and laughing and praying and growing together is happening. I hear the fact that people within the community, even though we are not meeting in person, are continuing to give their offerings, to give towards the work of God through Church of the Valley, and we have the opportunity to employ a wonderful staff to maintain our church, cap, uh, to maintain our church campus properly and to invest in individuals, in missionaries, while caring for the needs of those within the church community. You want to know what your giving goes towards. It's a lot of that. So thank you for continuing to give. 
And I want you to know that we as a leadership are fervently praying and thinking through how we can safely meet in person as soon as possible. And boy, will it be a blast to worship together in person and learn from God's word together. So I'm going to pray. If you'd like to give of your offering, uh, we're going to put on the screen uh, how you can give. You can send a check to the campus with the address that will be on the screen, or you can go to our website, and it'll give you the link right here on the screen. But if you are giving, I hope that it's not out of guilt, because where the gospel is, guilt goes away. I hope it's out of a want to worship, because worship isn't just singing. It's allowing your life to be something that's prostrate before God. And so let's pray. And I really hope that I'll see you on the takeaway call. And I really hope that God is doing a crazy work and that you'll reach out to somebody within the community just to see how they're doing this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every person who has watched what I felt like was a pretty long sermon. My bad. But God, your word is so true. And I was so excited to open it and teach your people. And so, God, I pray that you would take this offering and you would use it for the glory of your name. Would you use it in miraculous ways? Would people go from death to life because of the giving that you are going to use through Church of the Valley, through your people at Church of the Valley? And God, would you allow us to be a people that look at our suffering as an opportunity to grow, to be submitted to you through the leaders that you've entrusted, and would the leaders care for the flock as we ought to, God, not because we must, but because we are willing. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.